Hey there, welcome to the Deeper Podcast. I'm recording this on November 8th, 2022, which is the day of the U.S. midterm elections, which for a lot of people, regardless of political persuasion, has brought up a lot of feelings, which just means it's a great time to center both courage and love in our lives, which is all this podcast is about, because we want to be a space that helps you live your life with a little bit more courage to, to love the hell out of this world, because that's what we're about. My name is Reverend Chant. I'm one of your hosts, and this is a really fun episode, even though it deals with a kind of heavy topic. How do we deal with death and grief? The death and grief of pe- people we love, pets we love, but also the larger grief, the grief at our climate in crisis, the grief of a world at war. And so we're going to be exploring tools that we can bring, perspectives that we can offer about how to deal with death and grief in a way that actually connects us deeper to life, which is, of course, our aim. Now, on this episode, we're going to be hearing from a few different voices. Reverend Elaine is going to be offering us a little message specifically around remembering and dealing with the death of someone we love. We're also going to hear from Katie, our business administrator, who's going to talk about her experience going to the Lizzo concert, and I hope it converts all of y'all to be Lizzo fans. And we're also going to hear a conversation that Elaine and I had about Joanna Macy's work and the work that reconnects, which is comes out of the world of engaged Buddhism and natural systems ecology to help us orient towards a world in which we can find our place in the natural systems of life in a way that is life-giving, but also helps us shift and transform the systems that are at stake. We're going to begin with a reading from the Unitarian Universalist minister, the Reverend Kate Tucker. It's a reading about what to expect when you have experienced loss. That reading that Elaine and I offer is going to segue directly into the message that Elaine is going to offer. So let's dive right in. This is What to Expect After a Loved One Dies from the Reverend Kate Tucker. What helps when you are living with loss, grief, and great change? It helps to expect that you will be surprised. No one exactly like you has experienced a loss just like yours. Your inner clock, your inner landscape, your intimate story is yours and no one else's. It helps to understand that this will take you on an unpredictable journey and that this change is a thing that happens in your body not just in your soul. It helps to know that your feelings can be complex and multiple. Sorrow and relief, love and anger, despair and hope. All of these can live together and yo-yo in astonishing waves. It helps when you can welcome all the feelings, show hospitality, Ask them to tea. It helps to give sorrow words, to tell your heart to those who know how to listen and who love you, the ones who don't mind at all when you repeat yourself. It helps to recognize that though your loved one dies, your relationship does not. It changes. It flows, it grows, it distills, it lives. 
It helps to remember that there are things you will never know. Never ever figure out or reason your way to. You will never know what it was like for your loved one to live their life from the inside. This is a holy secret and a sacred mystery. It helps to remember that beauty does not die. It helps to know that when grief comes, it comes as teacher. It shows us what we fear and what we love, what we hold true. It tells us if we listen, a hundred ways to honor our loved one. It teaches us how we wish to live. Last Sunday, we held a beautiful memorial service out in Spring Canyon Park for Lacey Bearden, a member of this congregation who passed away this past July. It was a death that shocked so many of us. And after the service, as we shared cookies and cider under the golden cottonwood trees, a group of us mused about the nature of grief and the way that it can descend upon us like a cloudburst at the most unexpected times. One person shared this story and I found myself carrying it with me for days after. And so with the storyteller's permission, I'd like to share it with you. This past September, she and her husband took a trip that offered them the opportunity to drive by a house that used to belong to her parents. Now, this was not the 1950s bungalow where she'd spent all her childhood years. This was a different home. It was a larger home that her parents had purchased when she was already well into her late 30s and had two children. It was a home her parents had bought with the intention of hosting family when they came into town. And so her parents lived in this other house until the end of their lives. Her mother passed away in 2011 and her father in 2019. And so when she and her husband decided to drive by this house this past September, it wasn't a deliberate decision to deep dive into grief and memories. After all, it was not the house she grew up in, and three and a half years had already gone by since her last parent passed away, and she had already done so much of the intense work of grieving. Yet they pulled up to this house, and to her great surprise, she found herself completely overtaken in her body by grief. And the tears came hard and they would not stop. Something about this encounter just broke open the floodgates of grief in a way that she really had no choice but to totally surrender to. And yet, in her mind, this equation did not add up. This particular place at this particular time did not equal this intensity of grief. And yet, there it was, the grief that would not be refused. The unpredictability of grief is a truth that we all know well, and yet it continues to catch us by surprise. It's often prompted by little things or by things that we never thought would bring us to feel so deeply. A misplaced sock, a billboard on a familiar driving route, 
a note scribbled in a margin of a book. But grief is not the only thing that visits us in the little things or in unexpected places. Our ongoing relationship with our loved one also finds us in the little things. As Kate Tucker reminds us in our reading, it helps to recognize that though your loved one dies, your relationship does not. It changes, it flows, it grows, it distills, it lives. We may still talk to them. We may still feel their presence. We may still ask for their guidance. We may have experiences of offering and receiving forgiveness. Our enduring connection with departed people can be life-giving in its own mysterious and sometimes elusive way. It can also be very, very complicated. Not everyone in our lives was someone with whom we had a warm and affirming relationship. There are also those who hurt us, who were difficult, who were distant. And these two are connections that we must continue to navigate. Grief may be something that hits us when we least expect it, but it's also something that when we are ready, we can engage with intention. Taking the lessons from that relationship, even when they were painful lessons, into our day-to-day -day living in ways that amplify love and joy. Maybe even bringing it into our lives with a sense of play and creativity. We can choose to cook the foods and bake the treats that bring the person back into the space with us, hooking into those sensory memories and communing with our loved one across time and distance. We might set after some goal in alignment with our values, knowing that they would have been so proud of us, or that we would have been proud to have been an example to them, to show them our best self. We could even spot someone who reminds us of our loved one in some way, maybe somebody the age they would have been, and pick up their tab at a coffee shop or restaurant or give them some special attention, find some genuine connection, and maybe even if it really feels right, to let that person know that you're remembering somebody who they remind you of. We are so rarely alone in our grieving and missing people. It helps to recognize that though your loved one dies, your relationship does not. It changes, it grows, it flows, it distills, it lives. The fact of this continued relationship does not take away the pain of loss, but it can provide a cushion and a connection, and sometimes that is just what we need. May our living and our loving be fed by our continued relationships with those who have gone before us, and may we open our hearts to nurturing the connections found in the little things. May it be so. Amen. Hi. Hi. <laughs> we, we just listened to your, your homily from Sunday. 
it was short, but there was a lot in there. I was thinking about our roles as ministers and how often we encounter death, maybe more often than the average person. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a part of our kind of daily work almost. Mm-hmm. In all of your experience working with death as a minister and as a, as a chaplain in different settings, is there something that you wish people knew about that experience of, of dealing with and working with the grief that you experience after someone dies? Oh, what an interesting question. The thing that comes to mind for me is there's no avoiding grieving. It's so necessary. And if we can't somehow step into it with intention, it's going to happen anyways. It's going to come out sideways or we're going to get rocked by grief in some other way. But there's no right way to grieve. That everybody grieves differently and in their own way. It feels so important to not be judgmental of other people's ways of grieving and also to be so kind and gentle with yourself and your own grieving that there's no right way to do it. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grieving get quoted a lot, but they were never ever intended as any kind of like linear model for grief. Step one, step two, step three, step four. Exactly. A lot of judgment and confusion can come up around that or thinking, oh, you know, I'm done with the bargaining phase (laughs) on to the next phase. And that it's more just like different spaces we inhabit at different times. One of the things that I often say to people after they've experienced the death of a loved one, especially if it comes as, as a shocker or kind of suddenly, is that you, you often have more time than you think you do. Mm-hmm. Like There's often a sense of urgency to deal with everything and get it all squared away. And that, I think, is a, a, a shock reaction. Mm-hmm. And that that can, like, be this shockwave almost that pushes you through a lot of the detail work because there's going to be a lot of detail work around especially if you are you know working on it a memorial service or a uh, estates or what to do with the body or questions that come up like there's a lot of stuff that needs to figure it out and often there's a lot of rush to figure it out and that kind of shockwave kind of propels you through that and often that can like supplant doing the grieving work mm. And then you get to a place where you've finished all the things and then you just can descend even deeper. Yeah. And you're, you're even surprised at how it's hitting you a month later, two months later, because you've been in this kind of shock space for so long. You haven't been able to um, actually attend to what's going on. I've heard people say that the second year has been harder than the first mm-hmm. because that first year you see these milestones coming and you're bracing for them and the people in your community of care are bracing for them with you. And yeah, you're taking care of all the, I mean, it just feels so, I feel so mad at all of the logistical things that uh, bereaved people have to deal with. It's just endless. But then that second year comes and, you know, maybe you think it will be, easier or that you've 
run through it once again so you have some frame of reference, which may be true. Maybe both of those things will be true. Or maybe people are kind of ready to back off into some new normal around you. I think that those aftertimes can rock us in ways that that nobody wants. Also, you're just ready for it to be to feel better, you know, to feel more grounded, to stop feeling the heartache and the just so mixed up and disoriented and just so damn sad. Let alone the expectations from other people of like, right, like, shouldn't you be over this or like didn't happen a long time ago? And yet it's still present with you. The whole concept of just getting over a loss. I am starting to feel highly allergic to Mm. the phrase getting over anything Mm. because, you know, I think we learn how to live with things. I don't think getting over should ever be a goal we have for ourselves or for other people. I think sometimes it's also really hard to um, to companion people we love, people in our close circles in their grief because we feel the heaviness too and we feel their heaviness and we kind of want them to get over it so that we can move on or not be feeling the how hard it is. There's that line in the reading that you use for the service. It says, tell your story to people who love you where it's okay to repeat yourself. Right. To people who don't mind at all when you repeat yourself. There were chuckles at that in both of the service. I think just chuckles of knowing we have to repeat ourselves. Our grief has to be witnessed and we have to tell the same that's part of just integrating any radical change or new reality is we have to, the story keeps changing. And as we change with it, we have to tell it over and over again. And telling that story, I think what I've noticed about moving through challenging situations and and different grief experiences is that as you tell the story, often, even subtly, there are shifts Mm -hmm. in, in, in the story. And that could be that there's new chapters that you're adding to it. Mm-hmm. Like that relationship that you have with the person, your, your beloved who has died, it shifts as time goes on since they were living. They live in you in a different way, but also you live with the grief, mm-hmm. sometimes more, sometimes less. But that you that there are shifts in that story. And telling that story can over and over again can be helpful to realize how that story is shifting in you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think storytelling is such a sacred thing we make space for here. I'm very aware that as we're recording this, people are in the process of voting, that when this drops, people will have voted. And I wonder if we want to zoom out and think about, I mean, there's going to be big grief in the wake of this election. I don't know what it is yet, but I wonder... Sean, like, what are you holding <laughs> as we move forward in time and anticipate our disappointments and heartache are heading our way in terms of as a nation? Hmm. <laughs> Just that. Just that. I mean, the answer that came to mind when you asked the question was I was holding myself and I realized that I was literally holding myself. My like hands were like holding my arms and I was mm-hmm. hugging myself. Because that's sort of how I've been feeling, like in that kind of braced position. Me too. um, Of like the way to deal with the unknown, even the unknown that might be expected, 
is to is to brace and and to withdraw to not to not let projections of the future the, the optimism of potential be trounced feeling that the the kind of collective experience especially amongst white liberals after 2016 of how did trump get elected right that just feeling of shock at this the reality on the ground in 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 the country being so apparent and so there's that sense of i don't want to get i don't want to get my hopes up again because i remember what that was like so i'm feeling like the reverberations of past elections i don't know about you Oh, yeah, I definitely want to put like my astronaut helmet on and go just sit in a corner and wait until. <laughs> yeah, like is NASA accepting astronauts? I don't know, but I think they could make a lot of money providing like isolation chambers or something for hard times. Yeah, I totally with want to withdraw. I think part of it, too, is I feel like I've I've done what I can do. I cast my ballot. And so I'm just waiting for the next thing to come. And part of what I'm trying to remember, too, is that whatever happens, like, it's not the end of the story. And, you know, whatever disappointments or heartaches or rage we may feel as a result of these midterms, there are other hopeful and beautiful things that remain true. And I still have amazing resources for caring for myself. You know, I have my you know I keep thinking about actually is the wonderful trails in Fort Collins like Mm. that's what's coming Mm. that is my salvific image in this moment Mm -hmm. is like I can always keep walking Mm. I can always keep moving the sun will keep shining on my face I know how to get out and move my body and I'm so grateful for that because it's both a very literal thing I'm going to do and there is the I guess the metaphorical piece too which is you know I can keep moving. I, I still have agency. I can keep making choices. Um, and it's never too late to start. It's never too late for this to be the moment where you, you know, wipe your tears and pick yourself up off the ground and go join the group that you've told yourself for the past three years maybe isn't an option because of COVID or that you're like too nervous to cross the threshold or you feel like you don't have enough time or I don't know. I think that image of, of walking in the trails is so, is so apt and helpful. It reminds me of the, the, the Latin phrase, which is often attributed to St. Augustine, which is salvator ambulanto which means it is solved by walking. Yes. Like what, like whenever we face a problem, the, the question is like, how do we create that, a practical experiment uh, of how do we, how do we engage it rather than the with, withdrawal mm-hmm. or the, the acquiescence to it, that there's something by doing it, by engaging it, that we can move through it. And <laughs> that process of moving figuring out how to take that next step forward can get stuck in so many different places. What's what's a trail, what's a path, metaphorical or real, that we can take? So what are some familiar stuck places for you? Yes. The first one is when I get overwhelmed by all of the, um, the bad, mm-hmm. for lack of a more precise word, the pain. Mm-hmm. And that overwhelm tells me stories that says that this is inevitable, there's nothing that I can do about it. And that maybe I'm also failing. Like there's some judgment there that I've, 
like I've missed opportunities individually or collectively to do something that kind of overloads me and the outcome of that is both disconnecting from doing things that might be helpful from from walking the path to use our metaphor but it also disconnects me from from the goodness of life mm. because in the overwhelm where i'm giving all of the space to the the pain and the horror there isn't room often for delight for joy and for gratitude and delight joy gratitude laughter connection those practices those experiences they are what links us to to life in a way that is more sustainable and has more capacity to resource us through the challenging challenging times than any sort of rage that comes from injustice i love what you're saying and i i'm so curious about in your personal world what are sneaky ways that you can move from the overwhelm stuck in the badness it's always going to be this way into the delight and gratitude because i know for me as much as i want to say okay elaine feel this not that <laughs> it doesn't work that way <laughs> yeah i mentioned at the top of the episode joanna macy's work around the uh the work that reconnects mm -hmm. in which she talks about this spiral and the spiral is this practice that is kind of a journey that is not of course it's four steps, but it's not one, two, three, four, you're done. It's kind of that deepening spiral. And the first step there is always coming from a place of gratitude. Mm. So often when I'm in that overwhelmed place, I have forgotten any sort of practice of gratitude, of where in life do I feel connected? Do I feel safe? Do I feel any sort of spark of joy? And I've told this story before. I don't know if you've been there, Elaine. But one of the places that I come back to when I am at like, there's no water in my well of gratitude it is my kidneys. Oh. <laughs> I I have this practice of being grateful for my kidneys. I, I, it's just, I don't know where it came from, but I've always had this sense of like, I'm really happy that they're filtering my blood. Yeah. Like at a base level, like my day is made so much better and I'm alive because they are there. Yeah. And I don't know why they're more important in my mind than any other organ, but that doesn't seem important in this moment. Like, cause it is a ground of gratitude and I can feel it in my body. I totally get that. I'm just like, I'm so great. And even just that small, like sort of ridiculous, but also so real thing helps me ground of like, yeah, I, there is parts of these lives that I feel good about. I often think, I'm so glad at least I don't have a paper to write right now because that was one <laughs> the thing I hated so much all through school was having to write papers and essays. And I, another thing that helps me get unstuck is just beholding. And it usually is seeing something near a window mm. or just inviting myself to see beauty in whatever is in the space with me mm. at that time. And it usually has something to do with the light catching on an object. So gratitude is the beginning. Yeah. Because it connects us back to, to the why, why we are living and what are we fighting for. Um, but it, it's not the end of the spiral, of course, because the next step in the spiral after we come from gratitude is to honor our pain for the world, mm. which is, I think, a step that often we want to bypass, we don't want to feel the pain of the world mm -hmm. and honor that it, or we don't know how to. 
we feel it, but we don't know how to like actually honor it. It can, takes up all of our capacity. Why would why would I want to honor this thing that seems to be destroying me? Have you had an experience of honoring your pain that has helped you um, not manage it, like like not get over it, but just work with it? I mean, I can think of a couple of things. First of all, if I feel like I can get to a good cry mm. and there's a place to do that, that's very been a very effective way to honor my pain that usually has to do more with like personal circumstances i found the concept of a god box or some other just a container that feels that i could set aside as a special container or basket and to write down all the things that are causing me pain. So this would be more like on a political climate pain of the world note to write the things down, whether it would be making a bullet pointed list or just setting a timer for 10 minutes and free writing, trying to keep writing without picking up my pen. And then to place those things in that box and to place that box someplace that feels right. It really helps me writing really helps me to kind of externalize and name things and kind of I think both crying and writing kind of get the things out and that can be for me a really hard threshold to cross because there's a part of me that always wants to just keep organizing the feelings inside Mm. like maybe if I could just do that then I can move along but I think whether it's writing crying or talking Mm. um better out than in well, and when you when you externalize it, whether that's on a piece of paper or, or especially with other people, it it reminds us that so much of the time, those inner experiences and feelings that we have are not unique to us. Yeah, like other people are feeling this, mm-hmm. and the isolation that many of us can experience when we're engaging with the pain of the world, it's like, does anyone else care about this? Mm-hmm. Am I the only one that is holding the psychic load of everything? And when we when we're honoring it with other people we we often hear no i'm not the only one which connects us to partners mm-hmm. it connects us to that experience of empathy and it it reminds us that the reason that we are feeling the pain and, and the grief is because we are connected to something that's right right we we don't feel pain for things that we are not connected to and you may be thinking, well, I'm not connected to, you know, some, you know, the war in Ukraine. Like, it doesn't impact my daily life, and yet I'm feeling this deep. But you're human. You live on this planet. Mm-hmm. Like, by the very nature of that reality, we are connected. That That is what it means to be a part of an interdependent web, is that we are all connected to these things. And when we allow ourselves to remember that, we can often find a place of gratitude and a place to honor that pain, which allows us to practice a deep compassion to actually allow ourselves to suffer with and say, yeah, I'm feeling this pain because, you know, I am a part of the environment. And so it does impact me when I see ecosystems destroyed. The third step in the the spiral is to see with new or ancient eyes. And this is how can we look at the world then from that vantage point of how we are intimately and inextricably connected and related to all things, right? So that is like having that seventh principle 
putting on seventh principle glasses, that we can suddenly look at the world to see the connections differently. There was some politician that was speaking the other day, and they said, I want to live in a country where politicians aren't telling kids what books to read. That's what freedom looks like for me. Oh, that's a real, that's a different way of thinking about like, oh, we want to protect our kids from these like dangerous ideas. It's like, no, I, I don't want politicians. I, I want kids to be free to do that. And that just like shift helped me see, okay, there's maybe a different story here that we can work into. Mm. We can kind of taste a, a new way of being that we want to live into. I don't know if that part resonates with you, Elaine. I just think that's why I come to church. Mm. Okay. <laughs> I, yeah, tell me. I mean, I come to church every week. I come to church to get unstuck and to see with new eyes. One of the reasons I go to church uh, is the fourth step, mm-hmm. which is going forth. Mm-hmm. Because that's a, taking taking this this gratitude and the pain and the new perspectives and fusing them with action. That's right. And, and there's so many ways. I wouldn't know where to go with any of this. I wouldn't know how to bring my my gifts, my perspective, my energy to the table. Um, and church, for me, provides that place mm. of a community that wants to go out and change things and provides a structure to, to take those that goodwill and put it into action. That's right. So, Sean, when we started this conversation, I had no intention of plugging a particular programmatic thing at Foothills. Uh, and yet... And yet here we are. And yet here we are. And there is going to be a weekend-long retreat over Earth Day weekend in April that is all around engaging with Joanna Macy's work mm. of the the work that reconnects. So I just want to put out to the yeah. listener, keep your eyes peeled for some save the dates and some information about that because it's going to be a beautiful opportunity to really immerse yourself in this work and to, in community, figure out how do I move forward with this climate, mm-hmm. specifically around climate issues, you know, with this grief that I'm holding. I think that's such a good opportunity because figuring out which part of the spiral we're stuck on in this moment uh-huh. is such a freeing practice for us because it gives you a next step and some practices to, to help you move through it. It's one of the things I love about Joanna Macy's work is that it's very practical. There are practices that we can do individually and in community that help us move through um, where we're at. And even though, um, quite frankly, some of the things I do not want to do. Yeah. And yet... When I do them, I'm better for it. Well, thanks, Elaine. I so appreciate you uh, jumping on and you know talking talking this out with me. Oh yeah, I always love our conversation, Sean. Thanks. I so love talking to Elaine, and I also love talking to Katie. And so I'm going to invite Katie to jump in here. And I asked her to tell me all about her experience at the Lizard concert last week. It was the most delightful concert I've ever been to I have this problem where I am disappointed in every single concert I go to because there is a a wall of my beliefs that gets just destroyed and I think I have a very close relationship with the artists because they've been living in my head and I've been applying my life experiences to what they are singing about and like they're definitely just singing about my life which is amazing 
And then I get to the concert and all these other people are there and they are behaving differently than I want them to be behaving at the concert. And I spend the majority of the concert annoyed with the people. <laughs> this happened many times in my life. One of the best things about the Lizzo concert was the people. It was the most delightful concert I've ever been to. The people that were there were diverse and kind and just the whole thing was so positive. The way people interacted with each other was positive, but then just like who I noticed around me were also really positive. And she kept talking about how important it is to be kind to yourself. And then if we take that kindness and we give it to another person, it makes the world better. And the row directly in front of me was this woman who was probably close to 70, who was just like dancing for like the whole time and was so happy to be there. And then two queer teen boys who were clearly like on a date with their parents, so happy. And just like, they were just like screaming all of the lyrics all the time. And I was just so happy for them to be in that moment at that age in this experience and that their, their two, their, I presume these were the, both of their mothers were there with them in this space where when I grew up, Lizzo would not have been appropriate surely based on her language, right? Like that alone would have made it not appropriate for me to be listening to as a teenager. It wouldn't have mattered that the things she was saying would have been given me a view of the world. It was just that's profane and not appropriate. And these kids who like, they didn't have that barrier and instead were able to hear this message about um, how they are loved and seen and can love and see each other and in a, in a whole you know like giant arena full of people celebrating thinking about life that way so it sounds like that in other times the concert concerts can leave you feeling kind of isolated that you have this like personal relationship that you're coming into with the artist and then you encounter the distance between you and the artist and then other people who are having their own experience in a way that actually like detracts from it and yet this one you're coming in and it sounds like a greater like embodiment of the relationship that you had already had was expressed in that kind of communal gathering is that yeah. right yeah that's so true i think that um lizzo's music is encouraging to me and it and it you know like when i listen to it whenever and when listening to it with a group full of people realizing they're all living their own stories being encouraged by these same words it it did it did make me feel less alone in the world and that was a really fun feeling to have at a concert the thing about lizzo is it seems like she is having fun yes she was having fun the big girls dancers from the show, there was an opening act that was kind of typical in terms of the dancing was really kind of sensual. And the big girls dancers, are, they're just having fun. Like they were like, at one point, I was just like, this is what people do in their kitchens with spatulas when the music hits them right. It's that kind of dancing with a lot of twerking, you know, in there too, but that most of us are not able to do, that it was just joyful dancing. It wasn't dancing that was necessarily choreographed to make the audience feel desire, but instead just like 
like for me, it was like a reminisce of like a really happy place, right? Dancing where nobody's watching versus a kind of dancing that's like inaccessible to everyone. Which again is like another embodiment of the message. Often when we meet, like there are like celebrity and celebrity culture, their lives feel inaccessible to us. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the experience of like getting close to them just reinforces that. Mm -hmm. Um, And and even in small ways, right? Like I went to see a modern dance show the other day, which was amazing. It was beautiful. And none of the things would be something that my body would do. Like it, it, it didn't evoke that in me. So it did feel like inaccessible. It was like amazing and powerful and I got a lot of delight in it, but it didn't, um, it didn't give me something that I could take back home in terms of like how I would move my body differently. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like this like evokes something in you that the kind of dancing. Just, do you think it's true that like you're dancing differently or with more, more zest or more something? Because of that interchange? Not to downplay that. I, I'm sure there's a lot of complexity to what they were doing, but that it, that it was like centered in a joyfulness that rooted in a place in dance that I think we all want to be a part of. Actually, at two different points, brought audience members up on the stage. One, one was this young woman, I probably like late teen, early 20s during the song Birthday Girl. And she was not like in any way a phenomenal dancer, but she came up and was dancing with them. And it was like, it was fun. It was just, they were all fun dancing together. And so the fact that somebody from the audience could, could be called up and just participate and that be part of what they planned, right, was to create this like moment for a stranger. They were inviting you into like, come dance with us, come celebrate your body with us. This is a space mm-hmm. where everybody, and at one point she she asked like, you know, where are different groups of people at? And just, you know, just this sort of like, we're all different and we're all, we all have something to love about ourselves and don't let the world tell you anything different. And she, and then is doing that, right? Like she's putting herself out there. She had one point where she was wearing an all nude suit and, you know, talking about being comfortable with her body and the, the, the bravery of that. I think every single time, every single time, even if you've heard the heard her talk about it, for her to get up and physically body that and and set an example for like it's it's a choice I make to delight in this body that's mine. And it's a choice I make to move through this world in a way that invites other people to delight in themselves too. Earlier in the, the episode, I was talking to Elaine and we were talking about the first step in Joanna Macy's work to reconnect, which is about connecting to gratitude. And one of the things that Elaine asked me was like, what is it when it's hard for you to connect in, what do you do? Um, and I shared that one of my practices is that I always am grateful for my kidney. And there's something about like that practice for me that has like spiraled out into gratefulness that I can bring to my body in larger ways. That there are so many things that my body allows me to have access to. Sensations, relationships, movement, strength, connection that um, that I would not have thought about if I wouldn't have cultivated a practice of some sort of gratitude for my body because we all have those it, it, like messages from culture about our bodies and if they're good or bad or 
what size they should be and how big they should be and all these things. And yet what, what changes for us when we can actually turn to our bodies and say, wow, I'm so grateful for you. Yes. And, and I think that's a huge, huge thing. Like if you think about the ability to really acknowledge and delight in and all that this does for me. And when I'm rooted in a place of gratitude in that, I, I encounter everybody differently. Finding those practices that root us in that experience of gratefulness reminds us that even when elections are going on, even when we're feeling sick or our bodies aren't doing what they want them to do, we can still be grateful for what they can do. I think it's a really important spiritual practice as we get older, as we become disabled, which often happens when we get older, and also roots us in, live, in life in a way that always focusing on the ways that things fall short and are disconnects doesn't help us re remember what we're connected to. It sounds like your experience there was all about what you were connected to. And what, what, what does it mean to center like joy? Uh, yeah. And then what is the opportunity when we, when a, when a lot of people connect to that, mm. again, right? Because I mean, even when I'm in my best headspace and I'm delighting in my body, I always presume that other people are judging me, right? Being in a room of people, being in a space that was curated by her where everyone came in with that perspective, it just was, it was really uninhibited. Um, in terms of seeing that that physical joy across the space. And I think that's what I saw in other people. That's what I saw in people sitting in front of me is this this woman who wouldn't normally be the the typical person who's, you know, dancing at 70 as as the way that she was, or these two queer boys, they had such a sense of ownership and being in that room. And that, you know, is it was a really joyful thing to both witness and be a part of. I'm so grateful, Katie, that you uh, brought a little snapshot of that joy to all of us. Thing it in our own lives can sometimes be hard. And when we hear from other people, it kind of prime us. So thank you. Thank you. Sometimes I think to myself, you have a really weird job, Sean, that you can move from talking about death to talking about Lizzo and then talking about budgets and then talking about worship and how to create a community that is centered in courage and love. And I think it's true. I have an amazing job and yet an amazingly weird job that is, but it also is amazingly weird to be human. And I am so grateful that I get to be human with all of you. The podcast is made possible because we have a community, a community that supports us financially, that becomes courageous love activists, a community that says yes to the work we're doing. We just wanted to end this episode by saying thank you. Thank you to all the people who make everything that we do possible. It is because of our community that we are able to do this. And we'd so love for you to be a part of that community. There are so many ways to find your way in. And if you're ever struggling to know what that is, we'd love to hear from you, especially if you're a podcast listener that isn't connected. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us at hello at foothillsuu.org. Well, that about wraps it up for this week. Stay tuned for next week when I am going to be talking about why birds aren't real.